And I've had those tours where I've just been like totally reclusive and a total hermit. And you're like, you're just seeing me on stage. I'm spending most of my day just trying to like warm up and be smart about it. Doing lots of things that are probably pure placebo. You know what I mean? Like they're not fixing or solving anything, but like, and then I guess just the nerves, like you're spending, you know, 22 and a half hours a day, just being really nervous. <laughs> you know, that's just, that's an awful feeling, you know, like I want to, I want to go out there confident and excited. And the nights that I go out there confident, excited, those are like, there's nothing greater, you know, than doing what I do. It's the best job in the world. And so those, yeah, that, that dynamic is, I don't feel a lot of pressure because I don't think about that pressure. You know, I never did, but those are the moments where you start thinking about that pressure. That's Tim McElrath. And this is the sound of you. What's up? Welcome back. It's me. My name is Davin. I'm the host of this podcast. It's called The Sound of You. And I'm super stoked for you to listen in on this episode. In it is a conversation that I had with my friend and my client, Tim McElrath. And quite honestly, I've never heard anyone have a conversation like this before publicly. Tim is the lead singer for the punk band Rise Against, and Tim and Rise Against, they've been doing this thing for 20 years. And in this conversation, Tim takes me all the way back to the beginning, to his parents' basement, singing through a lousy PA, learning how to scream in the punk and the hardcore scene, and then ultimately taking on the mantle of singer. He's so generous and so forthcoming with what it's like to be on tour and quite honestly to struggle, to have days where you're not sure if your voice is going to show up for you. And then ultimately we discuss what it was like a couple years back when Tim came to the realization that he just couldn't sustain doing what he was doing any longer and so he had to create some changes. And he and I discuss how together we sort of took apart the machine that is his voice and put it back together in a way that would work better for him for the long haul. This conversation, it is full of behind the scenes knowledge about singing, touring, performing, screaming. I think it's full of gold. I think you're really gonna enjoy it. One quick note, there is adult language in this conversation. So with that being said, Without further ado, I give to you the one and only Tim McElrath. This one's called Architects. Okay, so I've been down uh, a little bit of a Tim McElrath rabbit hole myself and thinking about having this conversation. And I was listening to this one interview where the interviewer starts off by um, pointing out that you introduce yourself as uh, the singer, or you sing with Rise Against. And um, you all kind of made a joke back and forth about that, that you said, you know, you do that for singers, you're part of a, a union of singers. But I wanted to unpack that just a little bit more and think about um, here on the front end, 
Because clearly that's something you've thought about. So what does that mean to you to say you sing with or you're the singer with Rise Against? I, I always think of the story I was talking to uh, Greg Graffin, who's the singer of Bad Religion. And he's also a professor and a doctor of like evolutionary biology. He operates on a different level than a lot of people operate on, you know. And, but he's also really funny, like a really dry humor. And we toured with them when we were a smaller band opening up for them. And I was loading our gear out of the back of our trailer. And Greg walked up to us and in his very dry humor, he's like, oh, Tim, I see you're loading gear. And I was like, yeah, Greg. He's like, you know that us singers, we are part of a union. We're part of, it's, it's singers and pitchers and quarterbacks, and we don't load gear, <laughs> you know? And of course, my band was just like, you know, looking at like, like, don't listen to him. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he was clearly just joking around, but it was the first time, like, you know, I think like I was like bonding with another person who does that, you know, in a band. Cause I think when you start out, especially in punk and hardcore, there's a lot of, it's, it's, everything's, everybody's kind of on a, on a level playing field, you know, like you're just kind of, we're all equal. And then as I got more, um, as, as the snowball kept going with Rise Against and I was doing this more and more, I realized like, oh, like there's a lot of value to having conversations with other singers in terms of all the things that we go through. Um, whether it's just the physical aspect of singing, the nature of trying to snake charm a crowd into like, you know, <laughs> like listen to you or, or the notion of like creating. There are certain people that I meet whether it's on the street or just people that I want to be talking to where sometimes I'll just be like, Oh, I'm in rise against, you know, but sometimes I'll be like, I want to be like, I want you to know that like I sing for rise against, you know, yeah. because I want, cause that person I want them to know, like, so I'm interested in what you do from the, through the lens of a singer. And so there are times where I, where I do that. And sometimes it's just really, there's, there's like the awkwardness of being like a, a very pseudo D-list celebrity or you're trying to explain who you are to somebody. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because like all they know is Taylor Swift or their neighbor who plays at the bar on weekends and they don't really know a lot of things in between, you know, and I'm somewhere in between all that. I'm also, I'm guilty of being very evasive about what I do just in general when I meet somebody at an airport or whatever, you know, when they start grilling me and I'm just like, I, I'm just kind of a private person. Sometimes I don't want to necessarily out myself. And so I'm guilty of like turning it into a game of 20 questions inadvertently. <laughs> and like, so what do you do? I work in music, but like what? And all of a sudden you're going down the thing. And when you get to the 20th question, you're finally just like, yes, I'm the guy. I'm, I'm the voice that you hear. Like you figured me out. Well, I think that that's so interesting because I do think that there's a, a way that, and, and I want to dig more into this later, but that singers are exposed in a way that instrumentalists aren't. And it's not like a better or worse thing. It's just a different thing. But that when you do reveal yourself as the voice of something, there is um, a part of your sort of humanity, part of who you are as a person that seems suddenly exposed. And, and I just thought that that comment was really interesting because, um, you know, a lot of people that know me have have known that this is part of my um, philosophy on life, that I introduce myself as a singer for that very reason, to push myself up against that discomfort of, of, yeah, well, what do you sing? And what does it sound like? And what does that mean? So when I heard you say that, I was, I was interested in that. But I'm also interested in this thought that the scene that you come out of, which is a very specific scene from a very specific time, and, and um, this idea of 
of equality amongst its members um, who represented a, a certain subset of people. But I wonder if you can think about that early on as it related to your first experiences singing in a band. I mean, how did you relate to being a singer in the early days? I didn't want to be a singer. I remember that. I remember thinking that that seemed like a really tall order, you know, and I didn't qualify myself as a singer. Um, and anybody who has had the pleasure of hearing my early bands knew that I wasn't much of a singer. And so it was like, uh, I remember thinking that it'd be really cool to play guitar in a band and write songs. And I would get somebody, you know, some good looking dude would be up there and he would be out there singing and belting these songs out. And I would just be the guy behind him. And that sounded like, that sounded like a good idea, you know? And, um, I had done enough stuff with enough friends trying to find that person in the meantime, you know, like, you know, like when you're trying to get someone to do something that you want it to happen in the way you want it to happen and they're not doing it, you, at some point you say, I'll just do it, you know? Yeah. And that was me listening to other people sing, you know, it was kind of like, this isn't, no, you should do it different. No, I finally I was like, wait a minute, I should just be doing this because I can't sit here and pull these strings. And I remember that was the moment where I was like, I don't think that I'm any good at this, but I do feel like I have an instinct to, in terms of like what I want it to sound like. And that's kind of how I got into singing was just kind of, I don't know, sort of like just pushed into it, you know, in a way. And, but, I, but grew up in a really cool scene that allowed me to grow as a singer without expecting me, without having those expectations on me, like from day one. It was very beneficial to be in a place where like, everybody was allowed to be vulnerable like you said Everybody was allowed to be like make mistakes we were we were in punk rock and hardcore so we were supposed to sound a little broken and messed up you know what i mean there was like there was a lot of margin of error and you're like things that you do alone in your room creatively when you take chances and risks you know that scene felt like that where we could take chances and risks and there was not a lot of, of judgment on that like one of your first bands Baxter, I went back and listened to the the tape, which has been uploaded to the internet, which was awesome to listen to. But it's like, you know, you're constantly doing this dance between screaming and singing, you know, and, and whenever you're singing, it is um, just like all in, right? Like there aren't there aren't quiet moments in, in any of that. It's funny when you talk about it, the vulnerability of it, because there is such an intensity to the risk of making that sound that you have to be all in. Like you can't, you can't half scream. Right. <laughs> and so from right. some of your, so from your very first sort of music making experiences, it seems like you were all in by the nature of what it was that you were doing. Yeah, it was music was very emotional to me, and it was it was also happening at a time where I was had some close friends and we were just playing in the basement and having a good time. And like, I mean, that band Baxter, it was just us in like my parents' basement playing music for hours, just hours, nonstop. Like, and I remember those moments and they're just as rewarding as any show I've ever played. No one was listening. No, we didn't care. You know, you couldn't stop us and we were gonna come back again and do it tomorrow. 
Like it was just this really gratifying, I don't know, really cool part of my life. And we happened to channel it into, into song form, you know, where it was bands are camaraderie, their chemistry and life is camaraderie and chemistry. And it's always sort of fleeting, right? Like you've had ebbs and flows of your life where you had a good group of friends and you guys were all firing and all pistons and it was awesome. And then something happened. Someone started dating somebody or like, you know, like, and I feel like we managed to like harness that and make music with it, you know? So I like, I'm so, I'm super attached to it because of that. Cause it reminds me of some really fun times in my life was like some of my best friends and the music was very primal and just emotional. And I'll, I'll tell you what else too, when you play in a band like that, um, everyone, the drummer, the guitar player, the bass player, everyone's got their own version of like shitty equipment that you bring in. You know, the drummer's got his shitty drum set and we're all just kids. We don't have anything fancy, you know, but we got enough. We got our hand-me-down guitars, our busted amplifiers. We bought at a garage sale and that's what you had. And it probably was the most valuable thing you owned, by the way, if at that age, you know, it was like you spent a lot of money on it, but nobody had a good PA. <laughs> You know what I mean? Oh, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> that seems like a frivolous thing to own or spend money. It's, it's about as rewarding as spending money on a couch or like a coffee table. You know what I mean? You're just like, oh, great. I have a couch now. They are, we already blew our budget on instruments and like the microphone that was like from Radio Shack. You know what I mean? The PA was stolen from a church, you know, like all that stuff. And so vocals, you never really heard them. All right. Yeah. And I think that that's like such a interesting part of growing into any sort of amplified music, which is it's just everything other than operatic music, which is like you realize you can realize that, you know, the microphone and the PA system and monitors like these make or break you early on in terms of your relationship to your sound. And this is what I was thinking about, actually, when we talk about sort of equality amongst the group's members because it's not equal. You know, the the guitar can continue to turn up. The drums can be banged louder. You know, it, all of that has, um, especially when, when in terms of amplification, has a different sort of power that it can muster than your voice. But traditionally in a band setting, the voice is supposed to be the outstanding sound. Right. And I feel like I was able to grow in a place where people couldn't really hear me. I wasn't under the microscope. You know what I mean? So like for people who aren't, aren't singers, it's kind of the equivalent of like, like going from like singing into a crappy amplifier where nobody can really hear you, but you're still singing. So like they're getting people getting the general sounds versus putting headphones on and having your vocals isolated. So they're really under the microscope. That's the difference between like you picking up your iPhone and trying to take a picture and all of a sudden you hit selfie mode and your face is in the picture really close up. And you're like, Oh my God, <laughs> that's what, when your voice is under that microscope, you know what I mean? Like you would do things differently unless you had the confidence to sing, you know? And many of us would hear our voices, you know, especially at an early stage, like when you're 15 years old or whatever, unless you're really gifted and be like, I don't, I don't want that. I don't like that, you know? And so I was able to, to develop a play. I was able to develop out from under the microscope, you know? And that, I think about that because that's why I sang, I think, as loud as I sang, because I had to be heard. Um, not, and the music was emotional. And it was just kind of a, it was the state of the technology we were like kind of working with, you know, I think yeah. allowed me to become a singer. This is a very, this will seem like a very strange correlation, but Ethel Merman, right? One of the famous voices of time. You! Yeah. 
she developed her sound to this because it was prior to amplification she developed this belting sound to carry over orchestras popular orchestras that had trombones trumpets and, and to be able to be in a hall and be heard and so that you know amplification is actually a rather new invention in the history of music um, and so it is interesting how voices have evolved to um, to adjust to what it is that the expectations are. I love that. I've never heard that before. Because I feel like when I when I say like what I just said to you, how I, I learned how to sing because of my I had a crappy amplifier and a bad PA, you know, that's kind of the, it was it was a physical way to to figure it out. You know, you were dealing with what you had. It felt like I was I was just blending with the instruments and nobody was really hearing me very clearly. And I felt very lucky to have that because I don't know, it would have been a, a giant hurdle to get over if I was expected to like be isolated like right away. Well, and so then if we look at your sort of history of groups that you're part of, the next group was this group called Arma Angelus. And what made me laugh when I was researching this is on Wikipedia, someone has created like a chart of members during time and what they did. And you are labeled as the quote unquote clean vocalist, whereas Pete Wentz, your band member, is the unclean vocals. And that just made me laugh because there's this there was this delineation that someone came up with around sounds that were more sung and then sounds that were more screamed. And I was curious if you guys talked about that, if you thought about it at the time. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> at that point in my life, everything I was listening to or my friends was listening to was screamy hardcore. Everybody was screaming, almost nobody sang. And so that made me feel a little bit like a black sheep. You know what I mean? Because I was like, I want to sing. Like, I still want to sing, you know? But people didn't have a lot of use for me in my scene as like a singer because it was like, we need screamers, you know? And even when I was in Arma, like I hadn't really developed like a really good scream yet. I hadn't really tried to do it basically, you know, cause I wasn't really, didn't feel compelled to do it at that point. And I remember being in the studio with Pete and all those guys and and he'd be like, McElrath, get your voice out here. Get like some of that like pretty saves the day stuff on here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Because I could sing and nobody else could. And I remember just being like, what? Like, yeah, just, and those are his words that I'm singing too, like on those recordings we did. And I went in there and it was like this weird, like, I remember them being like, whoa, like he can do something we can't do, you know? And at that, it was only around that time that I started to think about me, myself as doing something somebody else can't do. Because it was very, hardcore was very egalitarian at that point. And so it's just kind of, in my head, it was almost like we're all able to do everything and we're just choosing to do these things. You're right, yeah. Drummer. I, I could play drums if I want and that's not true at all, but <laughs> you know, like, and you could sing if you want, you know, and it was at that point I realized, oh, like this might be something that not everybody has. I remember those those times. Right, yeah. And I really like that um, consideration that like it was almost a choice that you did what you did because I think that there was something about that scene at that time that really even if even if it wasn't technically true that was sort of the ethos of of operation and again like there's almost like a, a fearlessness that can come with that right like if you actually believe that to be true like you can go all in on the front end you don't feel like it's not now if you look at 
you know, the voice or something like that. It really seems like there's something that you have to achieve. But when you come out of a scene like that, it, you're more trying to capture an energy, an idea, and, and your vocals were a symptom of that energy. And so it's cool to hear you reflect on exploring, well, what other sounds are there? Right. Yes, that was, it was, it was, it was something that I've only thought about later in my life. At the time, it was just this kind of, I don't know, it's just all happening all at the same time. I remember after Armangelis, these guys asked me to play in their band with them, um, which was a short-lived band, never, never really did a lot. And they asked me to sing. And it was the first time anybody had asked me to be a singer in their band, you know, which I was like, kind of flattered by. I was, I'm telling you, at that point, I still didn't consider myself like a singer. But they really wanted me to scream, you know? And so I remember spending my time in that band sort of developing that, like figuring out how to be like a screamer. And then at that point, I kind of had another kind of skill set, I guess. So when when Rise Against rolled around, and I, and I had done a band called The Killing Tree as well too, which was very screamy. By the time Rise Against rolled around, I had a few different like weapons in my arsenal. You know, like I was, I knew how to sing and now I knew a little bit more about how to scream. And so it was kind of perfect timing when when Rise Against was up to bat because it was like, okay, I can do a lot of different things with these songs, which was great because the first record, Joe wrote all the music for, but what's great about Joe's songwriting is that he was, he's never been locked into a specific style. Like he's like happy to write a really fast, hardcore song and he's happy to write a really pretty three chord poppy song you know yeah and so joe who's your bassist yeah sorry yeah yeah for all your listeners yeah he's based is in like co-collaborator in the band you know and he, he writes a lot of the music and so that was fun because i was like well i can scream over these fast punky hardcore songs i can sing over your pretty three chord songs you know we can even bust out an acoustic guitar if we want and like i can manage that and that was fun because it was like everything was so monolithic back then in our scene. It was like, if you are this kind of band, you do this kind of thing. And I know like when you zoom out, we rise against still probably seems very monolithic, you know, but like for us in that world, it was like, it really was like, we had a bunch of different sounds happening that a lot of bands weren't doing at the time. And bands were pressured to, I think, have just one specific sound and you may even be punished if you were, if you were too many different sounds. And so I feel like we kind of got away with it somehow. Rise Against felt very freeing. It was like we were able to just sort of like cast aside that stuff. And it was like, I don't know. I, I loved being a part of it because a lot of my friends had like kind of started to evolve from like punk and hardcore. And this was Chicago in the late 90s. So indie rock was starting to get really big and a big deal. And instead of hanging out at Fireside Bowl, we were hanging out at Double Door instead or Lounge Axe. You know, like mm. this, it was changing, you know, like people were growing up a little bit. But I remember, I remember liking that music and being like, because I liked all music. I really, it's really the, the kind of guy who was at all kinds of different shows. But I remember when rise against rolled around it was like i was craving like the all ages punk of like my youth and i say my youth i was probably 21 but i was like i remember thinking like all my friends are 
are starting to sit around bars and tapping their shoes to like mellow bands, you know? Right. And I miss the stage dives and I miss the pits and I miss the sweat and I miss all of that. And so it was great because when Joe approached me with all his music, I was like, yes, let's let's do this. Let's, I don't know if there's an audience for it. I don't know if anybody wants us to hear us do this, but let's do this. This will be fun. And so that was kind of the the nucleus or the ball of energy that sort of that put Rise Against into motion. So when you talk about screaming and singing and Rise Against, it, is that all stuff you just sort of figured out on your own, taught yourself in in the quiet of your bedroom? Where how did that happen for you? Yes, yeah, like you're the first person I've talked to about how to sing properly. So, <laughs> <laughs> and, and we I, met in 2018, <laughs> so. two years ago. Yeah, so it's exa- I never. Yes, no, I, I, yeah, I guess I should clarify. Like I never spoke with anybody about singing, and and not only nobody professionally, you know, but not even like. I didn't talk to my friends about singing. You know what I mean? Right. I didn't talk to like my roommates or the people in my band. You know, we didn't talk about it. You know, we just, I just did it, you know? And yeah. it was like, I didn't have a lot of critique. I didn't know what I was doing right or doing wrong. I just was doing it. And it didn't seem like a problem. And also punk rock and hardcore, the way it rejects all like convention, conventional thinking, like the idea of being trained to do it seemed like, Right. not a punk rock or hardcore thing to do. And so it wasn't cool if you were, if you were tra- trained a musician, you know, it was cooler if you weren't, you know? Yeah. And I'll say if you were to come into a, a, you know, most any voice teacher that you would find like in the suburbs of yeah. you know Chicago or something and yeah. bring what it is that you were doing at the time, they would have told you to stop doing it, right. you know, which would have not been helpful to you, especially as your band continued to sort of like grow its audience. And, um, but there's a reason that people have that, that reaction, but at the same time, it's like, there is, um, there is the, this physical act of singing and screaming and there's a coordination to it and there's a way to do it. And I think that's, what's so interesting about you and your story is that you did figure that out in some way that had some sustainability for you over time. And, and it's, and it's a real testament to, um, our ability to sort of experiment and play with the voice. And I assume that there are probably singers that you were trying to emulate early on. Is that true? I guess, I think like Fugazi was really big to me, like Ian McKay. Um, and just because he had gone from like minor threat to Fugazi too. So there was a lot of like, there was really fast screamy punk stuff, which I thought was the best of punk. And then he went to Fugazi, which was like happy to like play around with mellow parts and just singing. I thought, His, his style of singing was, I don't know. It was so, he found a way to sing that was just as confrontational as screaming. You know what I mean? And so I loved that. And so, yeah, there were, there were a couple of singers out there, I guess, who I was, I was trying to be, but I also knew that I didn't sound like anybody. And so I wasn't, you know. Yeah. That also is a gift too, ultimately, if you can own that early on and and realize that because so many people spend so long, you know, imi- imitation can be useful in terms of experimentation, but it also can be a death sentence if you get caught in the trap of trying to imitate. That's scary. Others. Like, don't like, especially growing up at the time when you and I grew up, um, the idea of recording something was a lot more complicated than it is now, you know? <laughs> 
And so I remember just thinking like, like, I don't know, 13 or 14, I remember thinking, I like, I kind of liked singing like to myself mostly, but I was kind of like, I wonder what my voice sounds like. You don't know what it sounds like to like somebody else. And I remember like doing the thing, like recording into the boom box. I remember just like singing into it. I'm like, I wonder if that's what my voice, and that wasn't even a good representation because I was so like, I remember being really shy about it and quiet and like, that's not how I sing, you know? But like, you don't, well, all you want to do is sound like somebody else. All you want to do is you want to sound like your favorite singers. And so what you don't think about at the time is that's not what people want. You know, they want you to sound like you. Well, you looked for work and money and you walked a ragged mile. And your children are so hungry that they don't know how to smile. So Rise Against has now been together for 20 years, um, and that's a lot of years of, of being with the band. But I wonder if we can dig into early on, because I think part of the success of Rise Against is that you guys have performed so much over that time. And, um, you know, I'm sure early on that meant playing to clubs that didn't have a lot of people in them or traveling, you know, uncomfortably in vans and so forth. But I wonder if you can just think about like, about singing through that time. What was that like? What, how were you aware of your, your voice? Did you, were you able to keep on top of things? How did that show up for you? When I think back, I think back just to how alone I was around those times. You know what I mean? Like I had the, I had the benefit of youth on my side, you know, so I could, do things physically that you just do when you're young, which is like play a show, load all your gear in a sweaty t-shirt in like 18 degrees in Edmonton, you know, in the middle of a snowstorm while you're just got off stage and your hair is still dripping wet. Um, sell merch the rest of the night to a, to a bar of like 50 people where no one's even buying your merch. And then get in the van and drive from like midnight to like four in the morning, like all night, just listening to music and then maybe stopping like a super eight sleeping from like four to like 11 AM and then getting back in the van and trying to make it to sound check in the next town, you know, and then doing those, uh, and then your whole day you're working, you know, you're loading gear, you're unloading gear, you're setting up your merch, you're trying to get food, you're maybe doing an interview. And so, yeah, it was like these long days. And then my voice was not anything anybody anybody cared about and like and that's something i really thought about and you're, you you are to do all this and you are expected to then go and then put on a great show because that's why we're here right all this is meant for you to just basically pick up that microphone one when, when it's time and just impress these people and you might have just one chance to do it because who knows if you'll ever be back in this town ever again if your band even lasts that long you know and so it was a lot of pressure but i think with with what like like i said i was so young that you were just resilient you bounce back from everything but i remember just constantly just being i don't know just being in over my head you know and not knowing anything about singing and just really, I think really lucking out that what I was doing was for the most part working, you know? And then as I got older 
and the band got more successful, there were a lot more demands on, on what I was doing. And then our shows got longer. That's the thing too, is that what people don't think about is that for the first few years of being our band, or I think a lot of bands, you're only responsible for like a 25 or 30 minute set, you know, like maybe eight songs or whatever, you know? And then when you kind of move up the marquee and your support slot or you're eventually headline, now you're expected to play for like an hour and a half. And that's a whole different world to sing for an hour and a half, you know, to sing 18 or 19 songs versus singing like six to eight songs. And I remember that being a tall order. Well, I even think about, so um, the type of music that you do and the way that you sing, if I were to give an analogy that might be useful, it's like doing um, like the vault in gymnastics. Like each song is like one vault. Okay. And you know, in, in gymnastics, they only do two in a night because that single vault takes so much out of you. But when you're doing a song that's like all in and you're screaming and you're just like giving full on energy the whole time, there's a price to pay for that. You know, there's a, it's taxing, but your music tends to be that the bulk of the time. So you doing an hour to an hour and a half set is different than a jazz singer. <laughs> you know, singing, <laughs> yeah. singing my funny Valentine is not the same as the music that you're um, putting out into the world. And so, yeah, I can really uh, sympathize with that experience. And I think if you look over time, you're not going to see a whole ton of examples of people that do what you do for as long as you do for that very reason, like that it, it's a very difficult thing to sustain over time. And I was looking back at your, it's funny cause I was looking back at your catalog and I noticed, so there's a song that you still play a lot now called Swing Life Away that you released in 2004. And to my ear, that's the first time you sort of touched on a down moment in your music. Like yeah. every song until that point is like, full-on hardcore and then this moment it's like it's almost like elliot smith showed up right like, <laughs> but but i was thinking about that in terms of maturity and like how you put together an album and a show and it's like you know that in some ways that might have i wonder if that was a relief to have a song like that in the canon that you am could sing clear? Or am i breaking up am i still your charm or am i just bad luck are we getting closer or are we just getting more lost? When we, start, when we started playing that song live, it was like, okay, I get a little break. But it was also nerve wracking because Swing Life Away was far more under that microscope that I was talking Exposed. about. Yeah, because the rest of it was just, I relied on pure volume as a singer. You know what I mean? I relied on pure strength, muscle, volume. It was like, and that is what people seem to react to you know um when i would go on stage and i would just be busting veins in my neck you know what i mean like that's kind of like what got a response out of people and so doing anything different was sort of a risk to me you know and i also was afraid that that's not that's not what people value in me as a singer it's not why they're showing up they're not showing up to see me sing quiet they're showing up to see me like to be a muscle and flex it, you know? And so swing was like, it was a different thing. There was nights where it was like the best part of my night. <laughs> you know what I mean? And there were nights where I was really nervous about, um, about playing it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that there is, like, the, I just come back to this word exposed. Like, when you strip it down, you know, your voice is suddenly exposed yes. in a different way. And, and it's funny because there is, like, this duality of experience in that moment where, yeah, you don't suddenly have to bring all this energy, but then you're being seen and heard differently. And, uh, yeah. And, and that is, uh, there's, there can be a lot of pressure put on that. What about, uh, tell me about some of those nights where it was like, oh shit, I got to sing Swing Life Away. What did, like, what could you recall about that feeling or that sensation or what's going on in your mind at that time? Oh man, I'm sure lots of singers can relate, but like, you know, there are nights where you know you don't have it. You know, nights where like, you know, by like sound check, you don't have it. You know, like, oh like I I did some damage last night or the, over the previous weeks or whatever, or I stayed up all night and hung out with friends or like, you know, at that point, at that time too, people were still smoking in bars, you know, for the, right. like five years of our band. So that was like really, really insane on vocalists, you know, just all that smoke that you're just living in, sleeping in the back of a van, you know, all that stuff. And there were nights where like, I don't, it's, it's just the worst feeling ever. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. You know what I mean? Like it really, and for me too, just cause like, it's the thing that you love to do and you can't do it. And you know, you can't do it. You know that like when you hit, go for that note, you know, that you're not gonna, that you can't hit it and you're not hitting it before you walk on stage and you see people out there just waiting for you, you know? And that's like every moment of your day is excruciating when like, you know, you don't have it, you know? It's like every, from the moment the cars start pulling in the parking lot and parking, to the moment they start lining up and buying t-shirts to the moment that they're waiting in the front and you can see the expectation on their faces and you realize like i don't have it 100 percent tonight you know and then that's when you either rely on like pure adrenaline or you just try to do your best you know i've only canceled really just a handful of shows in my 20 years which I think is like each and each show I canceled was a dagger through my heart, by the way, like each one was like one of the hardest decisions I had to make. Cause it was like, it was accepting failure and it was disappointing people. There are also, you know, there's a lot of like financial things. There's a lot of people who like put a lot of into their, put a lot of effort into making this thing happen and are relying on this thing happening. And it's just me who's shutting it down. You know what I mean? Because Joe can still play bass, you know, Zach is a little bit like a guitar and Brandon can still play drums. Everybody can do their part except for me. It's just the worst, just the lowest of the low when you, when you're there. Like, I'm just, I'm not a happy person to like be around it though. And in, in those moments when like, you know, that, that you don't, that you don't have it. And it made me want to eliminate those moments. You know what I mean? Maybe want to figure out, maybe want to call you and be like, I don't want to ever experience this ever again. Like what yeah, do I Because as the do? band gets bigger, as it did, and you start to show up to gigs with a lot more people. The number of cars pulling into right. the parking lot increases, that sort of pressure and anxiety increases. And, you know, you've recounted to me before that, like, as time went on and you're staying in nicer hotels than the Super 8, you know, it's just like almost that feeling of like, you need to just hide away until that moment that you have to be on stage because everything might take away anything else you might do might take away from the voice that you feel like you don't have or the sound or the energy and uh and that becomes like a yo-yo experience where you're in the isolation of of touring and then suddenly you're at the center of the fire mm -hmm. on stage just expected to produce yeah 
the sound. It's it's insane. It's an insane dynamic, you know. And I've had those tours where I've just been like totally reclusive and a total hermit, and you're like you're just seeing me on stage. I'm spending most of my day just trying to like warm up and be smart about it, doing lots of things that are probably pure placebo. You know what I mean? Like they're not fixing or solving anything, but like, and then I guess just the nerves. You know what I mean? Where you're just like you're spending, you know. 22 and a half hours a day, just being really nervous. <laughs> you know, that's just, that's an awful feeling, you know, like I want to, I want to go out there confident and excited. And the nights that I go out there confident, excited, those are like, there's nothing greater, you know, than doing what I do. It's the best job in the world. And so those, yeah, that, that dynamic is, I don't feel a lot of pressure because I don't think about that pressure. You know, I never did, but those are the moments where you start thinking about that pressure. Because people like are always like, before I go on stage, like, aren't you nervous? And it's I'm always like, no, I guess I'm not, or I guess I am, but I'm like, but it, like, I don't feel it the way you think I feel it. But then there, but then there are moments where you're like, oh, that's what they meant. <laughs> I, because I feel it right now. Like I feel like I'm not gonna be able to to deliver this. There are two things that this brings my mind to. One is just sort of back to our original thought and that there's uh, an embodied nature to singing. So your body is the sound and your body has a limitation, right? And what it can produce. And and on any given day, if you've exceeded that limitation, there's a, you, you pay a tax for that. Like there's a price to pay. Um, right. And when you're a part of a machine, uh, like the music industry, it, um, isn't always sympathetic to that that price or or the yeah. pressures that we put upon ourselves you know the expectations we put upon ourselves that we need to achieve a certain thing but the best analogy i have is like lifting weights like once you've lifted too heavy of weights like you can't keep lifting like you have to rest you have to rest your muscles that's the only way to get back and potentially lift heavier weights but um, where people get into a lot of trouble is they keep lifting even when they're tired and i know that you've seen some of that out in the world on tour with other people where it's like, and you, you, you keep muscling ahead until you can't muscle anymore. Yeah. Like I have a lot of peers who have had major vocal problems that required surgery, whether those are like nodes or polyps or all these things, multiple surgeries. Um, and these are my friends and like we, we, we share the stages together and we did all the same things. And I'm always looking at like them, like, Holy crap. Like, wait, if you ended up in the hospital, like, am I going to end up in the hospital? You know, like, what are, what are you doing? Cause it seems like we do a lot of the same things, you know? And so, and that didn't work out for you. So that stuff made me nervous. You know, that's when I started like actually finally meeting with like a rock doc in like Beverly Hills and be like, Hey, is anything going on down there? I should be worried about, you know? <laughs> and so, and he always gave me a clean bill of health. That was reassuring, but sometimes like it was not reassuring. Like I wanted him to tell me I had something going on because it would explain other things like working with a vocal coach like yourself changed my life. Right. Um, but it was a lot of work and I wanted to avoid that work. <laughs> I didn't want to do that work. You, nobody wants to do that work. I wanted a doctor to say, Oh, I found this weird thing in your vocal cord. And when I remove it, you'll be a great singer. You know, cause that seemed really easy. It was like, oh, that's just a surgery. And like, you know, I'll, this is my problem this whole time. Like any challenge I had was related to this medical thing, you know, and that's what I was keeping my fingers crossed for, you know, like, let's be great. And so when that doctor would be like, actually you're in fine shape, 
<laughs> your vocal cords are great. And I'd be like, oh man, <laughs> so you're telling me I got to go work. I got to go do the work to like figure this thing out. And that was when I started doing the work. Or, or that you should be, or even like the pressure that you should be able to like that, that there's something you're supposed to know. It's like, that can be really daunting to think about what you would have to do to make change, to create change, especially after you've been doing it for so long. The other piece too, is that getting surgery, wouldn't it be so great if that was a, a solution? But like you said, a lot of times these people will get surgery. And if you don't change the behavior, the problem reemerges. It's like you're back where you were. Had that guy told me, uh, yeah, I can do a surgery and you'll be a great singer. Well, yeah, fuck yeah, let's do that. You know? And yeah, that right. was, that was what that answer felt like to me when he was like, no, you, you, you have the tools, your voice is capable of doing whatever you want it to do. So whatever it's not doing is your own damn fault. So start fucking doing it, you know? And that's what that was like, that sobering kind of like moment where like, okay, I need to talk to somebody who knows what they're talking about then and, and start figuring this thing out. So let's talk about that moment in time where we met and, um, you know, you had been given a clean bill of health and, but you, from what I recall, were sort of in a place where you're like, this just isn't working right now. This isn't working anymore. Yeah. It's funny. I had probably looked you up for almost a year before I actually called you. You know what I mean? Cause I really didn't know where to start. And I even actually asked like people I knew in LA, you know, like, wh where do I go? And they're like, Oh, you go to this guy in Beverly Hills or you go to this guy in Santa Monica and you go to this guy in Tarzana. And, and I'm like, I, I'm not flying out there <laughs> to do that. I'm sorry. You know? And, and I'm going to go about Chicago and they were like, well, we don't know. And I'm like, and I remember looking up your name and being like, I don't know if this is my guy. It took me a long time to actually make that phone call. And then I did. And there were moments, like you said, where I felt like this isn't going to work. To give an analogy, it would be like if I was like a car and you started taking it apart. You start taking the engine apart. You start taking all the pieces apart, you know? And now I'm looking at that car, which is like my baby, right? It's like, I love this car. And I'm watching Davin take it all apart. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like, it was scary as shit to watch that happen. I was like, what are you doing? Like this thing, this thing got me to where I am. And this is my performance car. And now you're the engines over here and like the tires were over there and like and and sometimes i was like i need to drive it this weekend <laughs> you know what i mean like i need to take it somewhere like i have a show and like it's all in pieces and i remember i mean you saw me in those moments i was panicked you know i was like i don't know how to do this and i and i know now that like you were like well you have to do this and i know there's gonna be some awkward moments and there are gonna be weekends that you can't drive this car because that's where we're at but if you want to get this thing running again, we're gonna have to take it apart and you're gonna have to deal with it, you know? And you were, and you said it way nicer than that. <laughs> but like, but now I know in my head, it was like, that's what we were doing. And so in those moments were, it was panic sometimes, you know? But then, I, but then enough things happened. Little glimpses of like sunlight came through and I was like, wait, that worked. Or like, he was right about that. Like everything you told me, I could tell there was no bullshit. You know, there was no, there was no smoke and mirrors. 
what you were saying was working and when i and, and that's what kept me always coming back because it was like okay this is little by little this is happening it's that crapshoot element that is the worst from a singing standpoint where and and especially i think like in the world that you live in people really count on your voice not only for its sound but for what it represents you know rise against stands for um for for anti-establishment mm -hmm. in so many ways right and political um positions and right. and so yeah. forth and so so people are very they do put a different type of spotlight on you not in just in terms of skill but in terms of like we need tim's voice and so i thought about that a lot with the pressure that that you must feel and notice along the way but then I think about every time that we would work together and, and literally, yeah, you'd come in in a panic, but then I would always be like, dude, you sound great. Like I could, oh, Tim, from my perspective as an outsider, to be like, oh no, this is exactly getting better. And, and that was what always impressed me about you is you would keep showing up. I think about those concerts where your voice was struggling for whatever reason, but you were still there. You're still showing up. It's a part of, it's a part of your um, work at the, ethic that you've developed over time and and uh and it was really impressive to me and i also would just like to note that i'm very aware of the disassembling part of the car and and i try to say that like i think i probably said something very much like that in our very first session right but i wonder if you might think about like those glimpses of light Wh what were they like how would you describe those for someone who hasn't been down this journey oh man they <sighs> When we started working together, it was like you were just having me do really kind of mellow warm-ups that were almost like more about breath control and just more about connecting from note to note. When I would feel those things, it, they were like the first time I really was paying attention to how they felt, you know? And then I realized like, oh, like if I could do that, if I could get to those places and feel that resonation and I could activate that stuff, then maybe I can make something happen with this and then i think that when i started applying what you were telling me to just actually just coming back to my studio and just singing some songs which there are times where like singing some of my songs required a lot of warm-up required you know it just to be a good day you know and i was making it happen um and then so i started doing it more consistently i was like oh this is less of a challenge. Those were the pieces that were coming through because I was on tour a lot of time we were, that we were working together. And so showing up to a show and just applying some of those things that you were telling me as I, as I stepped up to the microphone and realized that they were working, you know, and just kind of, I think like just taking my foot off the gas just a little bit, you know, where it's like, I feel like I was pedal to the metal from the time that set time started the time we walked off stage, I was like, I am pedal to the metal. I'm expected to be pedal to the metal. You know what I mean? Like I have to be going 60 miles an hour, like the whole fucking time. And if you are not, people will not come back and see you again. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then I realized that I didn't need to do that. Not only did I not need to do that, but I could not do that. And people weren't really noticing that I wasn't doing it. I was managing that ferocity without just burying the needle. And then I realized I was like, oh, this is more fun. I can accomplish these songs in a more 
I can execute them in a more accurate way. And then I can stop thinking about it and just play a damn show for people. That's like what you were talking about. It's like people, my voice is something different to them. It's not just like, can you hit these notes? You know what I mean? They, it means something different. And that's what I want to focus on. I don't want people to be thinking about my voice when I'm on stage or my process or whatever. I want them to be thinking about what that song means to them, what the message means to them. That's what I want people to focus on. I think too, though, because you've been at this for so long that there's this longevity piece that, you know, you've, you've, there, your fans, observationally speaking, have literally grown up right. with you all. And I mean, it, if you check like YouTube comments, it's incredible because inevitably there'll be someone and be like, I was at the first Rise Again show. Like there's always someone talking about that element of your music and, and your voice, um, represents that sort of aging process and growing up, you know, like the sound. And so there's a nostalgia that people have for that older sound, which is impossible to achieve as you yourself get older. But there is a possibility of remaining youthful in the voice if you connect to the truth of your body in this moment. And that's when you say to me that you had never thought about the way the sound felt or the way, you know, that it, it, it felt to connect with your breath, things like that. Um, that to me is the key. It's, it's a mindfulness, right? It's a mindfulness of what it is to make the sound. And that is the key to actually sounding younger, longer, because you're actually putting in the amount of effort that's really required to make the sound that you want to make. And so many people overexert until they can't exert, especially in, in the type of music that you make, they overexert until they can't exert anymore. And then the whole thing just crashes and burns. Uh, the song is called The Violence. Catching on the crumbling precipice the rocks are coming loose to set the edge Are we laughing? Are we crying? Are we drowning? Are we dead? Are we dead? I was thinking about the analogy used of the car. It's like, you know, and a lot of times people love cars that look yeah, a little yeah. junky. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And there's nothing wrong with that. But you also need to be able to acknowledge that, yeah, this has some dings. Yes. In it, and it takes a lot of humility, you know, to do that. And uh, I really appreciate about you that at that point that you were able to do it. And I also acknowledge that I, this is so important that your willingness and ability to do it, I think, is contingent upon your age and everything you've been through. Like that, it you have. We only arrive at the points that we arrive at when we're ready to arrive there. And I just think about that sort of moment that we connected that you were ready for whatever reason because i've worked with a lot of people who aren't ready and and that's okay it's totally okay but there has to be this confluence of readiness need ability desire you know time um to come together i I had to do something different like i just needed to like it was like my life was groundhog day you know and it was such a challenge i just knew that there must be some some other way and there were even points there were ebbs and flows of our time working there where I feel like I would like get over a hurdle and I'd be like, oh, I'm good now. And I'd be celebrating like that worked. And then I would fall back into a pit like somewhere and be like, oh, and then I'd be like cursing the whole process. Like, oh, it didn't work, you know, or, and then I, and it took me a long time. I'd like, and I remember we've been working there for almost like, I think almost like two years at that point. And 
there were things that were just coming together. Even after I'd probably told you like, oh, it's all good now, you know what I mean? But there were new things that were happening. And I remember you saying that, like, I didn't want to intimidate you at the time, but this is like a couple year process probably, you know? And I don't, I didn't want you to walk back out the door and say, well, then screw that, you know? And it, but it was it, like, there were things, you had to show me a lot of things. And I just had to sort of keep singing and figure those things out. Cause the voice is such a strange thing. And you know this better than I do in terms of like, it's such a hard thing to describe and explain. And like, you know, like if you're showing someone how to throw a baseball, you can literally, your arm goes here. You know what I mean? And I want it to go here. You know what I mean? The voice is all, it's internal, it's inside. Yeah. So it's, it's hidden. A, what you have is like this magic that's able to communicate like these intangible ideas about what's happening inside. And then that requires language. You know what I mean? That requires like a specific language and that will, you'll be able to communicate that to somebody else. And that's a tricky thing to do. And that's something that I think at that point in my life, I had never spoken that language with anybody. And so when I finally understood it, it started to make more sense. And then it's, you know, it's, it's such a personal thing too. You know, your voice is such like a, there, there are times where like I avoid talking about my voice in interviews and that kind of thing because I don't want someone thinking about it when they see me play. Like, I think this conversation is important. You know what I mean? Especially if there's, I would have loved to have heard this conversation like 10 years ago. You know what I mean? So like if it can help somebody else, that's amazing. But when you come to my show, I don't want you thinking about my process or like my voice or whatever. I just want you to have a good time. Well, it's so important that the voice, and this is where I, I think a lot of singers get lost. Like your voice is never the most important thing about the sound. I mean, sorry, the song. Your voice is never the most important thing about the song. Your voice is simply a conduit for expression, you know, for the story. Songs are always stories that are supposed to be told. And, you know, even, even if, even songs without lyrics, right? It's about conveying an emotion, a mood, a feeling. And from a, from a singing perspective, or even, and this is what's so interesting to me about screaming, for instance, right? Like never is there a more obvious emotion, emotional burst than like when you use screaming in a song or in a sound. Um, but it's it's there for a very specific purpose, and that's meant to convey a feeling, an emotion, a mood, and it has value for that reason. But when we experience limitations in our voice, it limits our ability to actually express. So those times when you feel least successful as a singer, where you feel like things are stuck, where you feel like you can't hit the note, that's when people are actually going right. to notice your voice. People will not notice your voice and I'm saying this in the global you uh, sense, people won't notice our voice when we feel like we're not noticing our voice, when we're able to just express freely what it is that we're trying to express. Now, as a performer, there are certainly moments where you got to step back and go like, wait. And that's one of the things that, you know, you and I talked about, which I think is an interesting thing for the type of music that you do to have those moments on stage where you go, okay, take a pause here because it feels like you do need to be pedal to the metal the whole time but it's just not a realistic expectation exactly. Exactly. of yourself yeah like as a young person i was able to be pedal to the metal you know what i mean and pull it off but then it's like and then there's there's the aesthetic of it too where like i started realizing this is better not being pedal to the metal this sounds better people are gonna like this better and going back to like your your junky car like people some people like junky cars they like cars with character like that's who you are as a vocalist too like not everybody wants everything to sound perfect you know like and i think about that what you just said where your voice isn't the most important part 
of the song and people come to the shows for different reasons. I, I remember having a bad night in Colorado, which was a big deal for me because that's where we make all our records. And so like usually our production team comes down to the show from Fort Collins. And so I'm, I'm, I want to impress them. You know what I mean? I'm after, I'm after yeah. those are like, you know, the guys I want to impress. And I had a bad night. I was talking to Bill Stevenson, who's our, the producer of most of the Rise Against stuff you ever heard and was the drummer of Black Flag and of the Descendants, songwriter. He's a, just a punk rock legend, extraordinaire, you know, and a close friend of mine and certainly somebody that I feel like is a collaborator on everything that I've ever done. Um, and I'm backstage and I was down on myself because I knew I, I kind of not had a great show. And Bill's always great at not, not like at saying the right thing. And, and at that point, he was, he remember him telling me kind of what you just said. He's like, Tim, like, I don't think that what's, what's different about your music is that, you know, people aren't here to, to see you hit every single note perfectly. You know, that's not why they showed up to like the Fillmore tonight in Denver. They come for a lot of different and more important reasons. And you fulfilled that tonight. Like you did that. They're happy. You should be proud of what you did. And I was like, it's something about him saying it to me too. You know what I mean? Like uh, there's more weight to what he says to me than like what the rest of the planet says to me. <laughs> and like him saying that to me was like, it was really important. It made me realize like, yeah, like that, that is something that I need to think about. And that I'm not always totally aware or conscious of. It's a, it's an ego check, right? Like, and this is when we think about like stage fright and things like this, it's generally the mind telling you that you're the most important thing in that moment. And when you can think about music and art and creation as service to others, you know, it, it helps put you out of the way, uh, get you, get you out of the way and really allow you to, again, be the vessel for the song or the sound. And there are limitations on what you can deliver on any given night, which actually brings me to um, one last sort of technical thought is, is this idea of when you sing now or when you scream now, and it's different um, because you're coordinating it differently in your body and you're thinking about sustainability, you are giving up something that you could do in your youth, right? Like like that there you were actually able to during a time literally just scream for 30 minutes and then you could wake up and potentially do it the next day. Um, and I think that that's something that's just really interesting to consider for the listener or the fan. It's like, that we have these expectations that sound shouldn't change or doesn't change, especially with people's voices, but it's your body. But I wonder what your experience is with that. If Are you aware of that? Do you notice that it's landing differently now? Yeah. I mean, for me, it lands totally differently. And I love it when I can fool people, you know what I mean? When they don't hear it differently, you know, that's some, and I fooled Bill, you know, um, the last time we were in the studio, like I fooled him because he was one of the people that were skeptical about me, like talking to you. He was like afraid of pulling that car apart, you know, and no, nobody is more besides you probably is more intimately familiar with my voice than Bill. Cause he's just been there behind the glass for so many songs. And he's been there at my highest and been there at my lowest. And I fooled him. 
Like I was able to do things that were still aesthetically pleasing to the guy that has the highest bar for my voice on the planet and was fun for me, good for me, satisfying for me. It allowed me to like really reclaim my songs too. It was almost, it's almost like, um, you know, Rise Against has, I don't know, like a hundred, 120 songs out there. You know I mean? They're all my babies. And there was a point where I was like, am I able to still sing these songs? Like, could I do it? You know, if you put a quarter in me, could I pull this off? And there was a point where I felt like the answer to the question was no. And that was really sad to me. You know, and there's still songs that like, I definitely chose to sing them way higher than I should have. <laughs> so I will be challenged to do them. But for the most part, I am not intimidated by anything in our catalog anymore. And like, that's pretty uh, awesome feeling. I w- and I would say that that's actually unique. You know, again, if you use an athletic analogy, which is really the only useful analogy when we talk about singing, it's like you, uh, you don't behave the same now as you did then in terms of what you're able to do and achieve. The body changes, it's all different. But you, if you can change your relationship to the song and, and do it with... Um, the ability and the maturity that you've gathered over time then it's incredible to be able to do it and i will say like it's incredible to me that you do the songs you do in the keys that you do because most people lower their keys over time and there's nothing and and for the record there's nothing wrong with that there's there's no right or wrong key for a song it's really about setting it up in in a way that's going to set you up for success but it is um you know amazing to me that you're still pulling off some of the notes that you're pulling off that so regularly and routinely so i think it's a real testament to your ability to do the work to create the change and just generally to have a lifestyle that has allowed you for some longevity you know there are so many reasons why people point down various paths um, that don't allow them to do what they do for a long time so it's a real testament to some of the choices that you've made. So, so with that in mind, what is, what's the future hold for you right now? What's creatively exciting? What are you, um, what are you looking forward to singing? Oh my gosh. I mean, I'm looking forward to getting back with the band and doing stuff. And I feel like I've opened a lot of doors to like, that I've closed in the past in terms of like, if the guy's like, Hey, let's play this song. And I'd be like, no. <laughs> it's a hard no a hard no and that's frustrating to them because they're like ah fucking McElrath won't do this song you know because it's one of their favorite songs and maybe they wrote a great part for it and they just want to play it and I'm preventing that you know that sucks you know and now I feel like yes let's do it like let's open the door let's open the vault you know what I mean like let's go back and do the stuff that I have traditionally said no to and let's do it you know that's cool and then I mean I feel like anything else I want to do is like it's really been a it's been like um, a shift of, of frame of mind for me to now look at my future as less finite than I looked at it like a year or two ago. I looked at it more, 
I look, I was looking at things a lot more in the rearview mirror, I guess, and just thinking like, oh, well, I, well, I did it, you know, I, I was on that, on that football field when I was young, and now I'm not, now I'm off of it, you know, and now I look at it more like, well, no, I, I got, I have tools that I can use, and so that's kind of has my brain kind of really going to think about like the possibilities of, of what I can do, and in the, and in the, and in the very present exact moment. I'm back in college right now, which is taking up all my time. <laughs> so what, what I do post that, you know, the, the world's my oyster. Yeah. Well, that just doing that alone is another sort of um, uh, example of how you aren't aren't afraid of the work, which is awesome. You know what else it is? It's it's vocals and your vocal, especially being a songwriter like myself, it's tied to your writing because I feel like when I was struggling with my voice I also wrote less and that was because I didn't feel like these words had an avenue these words were not going to have a vehicle and so they represented struggle to me and so I wasn't motivated to write words and lyrics because I didn't see the vehicle in, in which these words would be delivered and because now I have a vehicle for it it's re-inspired me to be writing because now I can picture myself singing them. And that's why I think of the voices as uh, a metaphor for life and living. And it's like, you know, it's as a mirror to what it is that, or how it is that we see ourselves to function, to show up, to express ourselves, to be heard. Um, and when you feel that empowerment around your sound, especially if you identify as a singer, when you feel that empowerment around your sound, it opens up so many different avenues and sources and opportunities for exploration. So, so I just want to um, land this plane by saying I really appreciate. Um, your work ethic and your willingness and vulnerability. And I think that, that so many people do look to your voice as a, um, a representation of, uh, of what it is to be out in the world and be actively pursuing that, which is not just handed to you, right? Like that. And, and you've been so vocal over the years around, around standing up for what you believe in. And so, um, with that came a lot of pressure, but you've risen to that challenge and especially over the last few years. And that shows great depth and great maturity. And I'm grateful to have been along for some of the journey. And I got to say, it is my personal opinion that you sound kick ass right now. You sound seriously really great. And I'm excited for you to keep exploring. Oh, well, I appreciate that. And I appreciate, I mean, all the, the hard work you put into me because <laughs> it probably wasn't always easy. And it definitely, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where I'd be had we not met. Likewise, but let's not do it again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. All right. What do you think? That's pretty good, right? I think it's truly unique to get access to a singer of Tim's caliber, Tim's stature, Tim's experience, and have them actually share what was going on behind the scenes with their voice. I mean, so many people are so worried about 
letting their flaws show, but Tim just offers all of it with humility and grace. And it's so helpful and so useful for anyone who wants to pursue a similar journey. So I'm really, really so grateful to him for allowing us the privilege of listening in on that story. You can find Tim and Rise Against at riseagainst.com. You can, of course, stream them everywhere. You'll find them all over the internet and YouTube. They have pretty killer videos that you should check out and watch. And if you want to be in touch with me, if you want to know more about me, check out davinyoungs.com. You can find me on all the socials, Instagram, Twitter, etc. at davin, D-A-V-I-N, Youngs, Y-O-U-N-G-S. And if you like this podcast, please like, share, subscribe, review, do all of the things that help the internet know that we exist. Help me with the algorithm. And hopefully there will be more episodes like this to come. All right, my friends. I hope this inspires you. I hope you will use your voice. And I hope that you will sing. Peace. Peace.